Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear, and fine leather goods, all at 50% to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Before we begin, here's a reminder that as a valued listener to our podcast, you can get a discount subscription to New Scientist using the code POD20. Go to newscientist.com slash POD20 to subscribe and enjoy all the content of the magazine plus audio versions of the stories newscientist.com slash pod20 gets you the 20% discount. Hello and welcome to a special episode of New Scientist Weekly, brought to you from the COP26 Climate Summit in Glasgow. We'll introduce our panellists in a moment, but I wanted to start straight away with a quote from a young woman from Uganda I spoke to called Patience Nabukalu. And she was in Glasgow as part of the Fridays for Future MAPA group, and that stands for Most Affected People and Areas. Here she is. When it comes to the world leaders, I would want to thank them for wasting our time. I'm one of the people who have left school to come here. And what I hear are the pledges for the future. Yet I'm experiencing the crisis now. They have snatched our happiness. They have snatched our present and they have snatched our future from us. We had hopes in this COP, but I want to say it has not been a success. That was Patience Nabukali from Uganda saying this COP has not been a success. And we'll hear more from her later in the show. And that's part of what we're going to be discussing today. Not so much whether it's been a success or a failure, that sort of black and white measure, but more the mismatch in expectations going into the summit and on what it has achieved here and, and what it hasn't. So let's introduce the pod that's going to be discussing that with us today. I'm Penny Sarche in London. And I'm Rowan Hooper in Glasgow. And with me here are New Scientist journalists Adam Vaughan and Richard Webb. Hello, both. Hello. Hi. And we have a special guest with us, climate scientist Emily Shukra of the University of Cambridge. Uh, welcome, Emily, and thanks for joining us. Hello. On today's COP special, we're going to be looking at what the Glasgow Accord is likely to agree by the end of the summit. We'll also be looking at the problem of finance for developing nations and the question of reparation and loss and damage. And we're going to hear directly from young people from the global south who have been directly experiencing the impacts of climate change. But let's start by taking the temperature of the thing. Rowan, what's been your takeaway from the summit? Uh, my takeaway from the summit has been like an addiction to iron brew, actually. It's got, it's got me <laughs> I'm not through surprised. It. Why am I not surprised? <laughs> <laughs> but apart from that, I mean, I've had a really mixed impression. The response from scientists I've spoken with, and we, we'll hear from one in a minute, has been mostly, mostly sanguine. You know, they know how the treaty process works. So they're mostly kind of unmoved by and unsurprised by a lack of a spectacular breakthrough. 
But then you you hear from negotiators and diplomats, and and they're sort of duty bound to point to the genuine bright spots that we have seen over the last two weeks. And then there's this massive activity around the place. There's so many solutions and positive vibes and science going on. And then on the other side, there's real anger from activists and people on the outside, like we heard from patients just earlier. Um, But Emily, what are you taking away from this? As you said, as a scientist, it's always a bit frankly depressing because there's never enough you know it feels like it's never been enough for the last 30 years and we're still not at a place where emissions uh, reductions pledges uh, let alone actual action is is enough to limit the worst impacts of climate change and that if anything has been brought home to me even more this week because there's been this amazing arctic base camp here where they brought an iceberg from the uh, from the arctic and it slowly melted and i came here on on wednesday and it was this magnificent edifice of ice and then by uh, yesterday I went up there and there was a sort of sucking ice cube left and I thought that was you know symbolic of yeah. the world melting at an accelerated rate while uh, there's just talk going on you know that's always the background from a scientific perspective but at the same time it does feel as though progress even if it is at a bit of a glacial speed is being made that the ambition of Paris has started to be turned into some action we've seen things you know on methane we've seen things on deforestation we've seen things some progress on phasing out of coal we've seen some progress on move towards electric vehicles and it feels like it's moving to the next phase in terms of actually turning these ambitions into a plan but there's so much more to do. For me, watching it from London, I've been experiencing that whiplash you were talking about last week, Rowan. I I just felt when, you know, on Saturday, Greta Thunberg was declaring the whole thing a failure and a PR event. My feeling was, hang on, you know, some really important grounds being made. But then when the first draft agreement came out on Wednesday morning, that, that did feel a bit like a punch to the gut for me. But we'll do more on that later. Adam, what's your standout moment been? I think the most powerful moment for me was uh, the start of the summer with the leaders' speeches where for me the two that really grabbed me were Mia Motley, the Prime Minister of Barbados, uh, saying that you know failure to get to 1.5 degrees or well below two would be a death sentence for small island nations, uh, and then also the President of Palau saying you know if we don't act seriously here, you might as well bomb us. It's just the you know so bold and visceral and powerful you know i think that was that was the, probably the sort of emotional sucker punch of the whole summit so far obviously in terms of concrete substantial things i think the biggest moment obviously so far is the draft text whether uh, the final version is any good remains to be seen and richard what about you i don't have a standout moment as such but i think what for me has been a, a revelation and maybe an education is being in on some of the actual negotiations about climate finance which is a topic we'll get onto later and following how every single word and clause that flows into the final agreement is discussed, poured over and argued about by delegates from nigh on 200 countries across the world. And uh, politics is a bit of a dirty word. And I, I totally understand the frustrations of those, me included, who, who just think, can't we sort this expletive deleted thing out? But But the fact is, For all the imperfections in this building, not far away from us, we have representatives of the entire world discussing peaceably, without resorts of violence, the future of all of us out. And yes, you can deplore the power relationships, the assumptions, the history that form the backdrop of the negotiations, and you can wish they were different. But the fact 
they are happening in the way they are is when you take a long view of the history of humanity, nothing short of remarkable. Now, we're recording this on Thursday before the final text of the agreement that's going to come out of COP26 has been agreed on. But we have a pretty good idea of where it's going from the various draft texts that have come out along the way. And one interesting and really hopeful thing to note is the joint declaration put out by the US and China. That includes a pledge for action on methane. China didn't actually sign up to last week's international agreement on methane. And there's also a statement in there on the desire to end deforestation. So that's a boost at least. So Emily, were you happy or surprised to see that joint declaration from the US and China? So it was very welcome that um, the US and China finally stepped up again to global leadership around climate. Um, so just the fact that we had a joint declaration, I think, is is very welcome. Of course, it could have said more. But I think just the fact that there was something at this stage, I felt like progress. And Adam, uh, what, what are your key takeaways from what the cover decision, the final agreement is starting to look like? So the cover decision, this is the draft text of what would be, you know, the main outcome of Glasgow. And there were three things that really jump out to me. One is the crucial thing of what we're doing to actually stop climate change this is the mitigation. And so in that respect, countries have promised to come back next year with new emissions plans for 2030, which we know we need because we know they're nowhere near enough as it stands. There's some controversy over the language on that. The language is urges, but actually in legal terms, that's actually the strongest language you can have in one of these COP statements at the end. So sorry, COP is Conference of the Parties, the name of these summits. Uh, so, so that's actually quite good if that stays in. The second thing that jumps out is a pledge to accelerate the phase out of coal and fossil fuel subsidies. Now, that really is a bit of a moment. That's not been in any, you know, UN climate treaty or summit outcome or anything like that before. So that's a really big deal. Whether it stays in the final version, big question mark. There'll be a lot of pushback on that. There already has been. And the final thing of note is, for me, is the sort of doubling of finance for countries to adapt to a warming world. So that is also important. That mention of fossil fuels in, in the agreement is sort of doubly symbolic because on the one hand, if it stays in, this is probably the first time that we're going to see an explicit reference to the role of fossil fuels in causing climate change in one of these big UN international statements. On the other hand, this is the first time after 26 of these summits. And, and I think that kind of is a really good symbol of just how frustrating these negotiations have, have been, that it's taken this long to get there, right? Yeah, absolutely. There's, there's one more thing that I, that I would also mention as an additional thing, because I absolutely agree with you with the three things that you've already mentioned. The final thing that I think that's um, really important is that there is a recognition of the importance of Indigenous voices, the youth voices, of women's voices, of all these voices that perhaps haven't had as strong a a stronger voice in the past and that that is formally recognized within the rule you know within article six within the rules that are governing all of this because it feels as though when we've got people out on the streets around the world unless that is coming through into the formal text then you know this there's going to be a real problem of legitimacy frankly yeah, um, and you couldn't have set us up better for the next segment, which is when we're going to hear from um, youth activists, people from the global south, island nations. So thank you. 
A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. You should celebrate yourself every day, but some days you should celebrate with jewelry. Whether you want to commemorate an unforgettable moment or just bring some added sparkle to your collection, Blue Nile can offer you expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com today and experience the ease and convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com. BlueNile.com. Let's hear now from some more people from the Global South. Yeah, one of the things I was most keen to do here in Glasgow was to meet and talk with people who are experiencing real impacts from climate change right now. So here's a bit more from Patience Nabukalu from Uganda. And I asked her why she considered this COP a failure. It is not a success. The fact that they can think about protecting forests, cutting emissions by 2030, 2050, yet all what we what we came for here is to tell them we are already suffering. 1.1 is already held to us. How much more their targets of 1.5, 2.4 are here? That is held to us already. We are tired of wasting our time, but what I would want to say, next COP should be polluters out, the most affected people inside. Me, myself, I'm a victim of climate change, linked with wetland degradation right from my childhood, five years suffering the crisis. We've experienced floods, me and my family, since childhood. My mom had a grocery shop, and whenever it rained, it, it has always been asked to drain the water out of the houses, out of the grocery shop. And I missed school some days, some years, because of the crisis, because the flood had taken away my mom's source of income. Many people are losing lives. Many people are losing property. Many people out in Uganda and in Africa are losing their sources of income because of the crisis. They are signing pipelines every day. Uganda is one of the countries that have signed in the East African a pipeline. Where is this taking us? Emissions every day, and they are talking about cutting emissions at COP. They are saying they are to cut emissions, yet their businesses and their programs about emissions are still moving on out there. We are fed up of crying every day. We are fed up of losing school. We, we need human rights. Our rights are denied because of the crisis and all the time they're like, they will tackle the crisis. Why are they saying they will? I want them to even not talk about cutting emissions. I feel like they should cut. They always tell us that they will give us money for adaptation. We never see the money. Where is that? The hundred billions they talked about. We have never received the money and yet we are suffering the most. We are one of the least continent, that is Africa, to emissions. We emit less than 5%, but we are receiving the most effects of climate change. Why is it like that? They should pay their debts. 
I mean, you can really hear the anger there. And quite rightly, when she talks about the pipeline, that's a proposed oil pipeline called the East Africa Pipeline between Uganda and Tanzania. It's covering, you know, it's going to cover 1,500 kilometers, a heated pipeline for crude oil. It's going to cost around $3.5 billion. So, you know, it's not great. Oh, and we have the same issue here, not so far from Glasgow, with the proposed uh, Cambo oil field. There's a pipeline going to go through the sea there if that gets built. I also spoke with a guy called Bernard Kato Ewakia Taumia. He's from Tuvalu. You know, Tuvalu is a coral atoll in the South Pacific. It's one of the countries directly and immediately threatened by sea level rise. And I don't know, Penny, if you saw the Tuvalu foreign minister. Um, he spoke to the COP delegation by video link and he, he was from the ocean, standing in the ocean. With like, yeah, the podium in the sea. It was yeah. such a striking image, wasn't it? Exactly, with you know the encroaching ocean onto the shores of Tuvalu. Um, so here's Bernard. My country has been suffering every day from climate crisis. Um, every day, waves come and take land every day. And seawater doesn't come from sides, but also underneath our island because it's coral. As a youth, tomorrow we will be leading the future of Tuvalu. And when the youth, my youth, leads tomorrow, I want them Tuvalu to be already in a safe place, not hustling to go out and migrating to other places. Migrating people from Tuvalu to other places might be an option, but it's not a solution to our problem. So it's better to take action now. If we can save Tuvalu, we can save the world. Next, I spoke with Jacka Peter Faith Kandanga from Namibia. Because of the drought, it's been really difficult to survive. And a lot of people have been left hungry and in poverty. And I have seen a lot of my classmates having to drop out of school because they have to go back to their villages to go help like with farming and so forth. And not only that, we have a lot of um, social issues that connect to um, the climate crisis as well because you, we have like ladies or women that live in rural areas that survive of farming and cropping but then because of drought a lot of people have to now migrate to urban areas and now they don't have jobs because of the high unemployment so they end up being like prostitutes and you know all these things and the crime rate increases and stuff. It's interesting to hear her point out the social issues there the knock-on effects of the climate crisis. Yeah that that was one of the things of the many things that I found really really moving and powerful in speaking with these young activists. I want to try and get loads of them in. So here's another. This is Marissa Reyes. She's a young farm worker from Puerto Rico and a member of La Via Campesina. That's a land worker movement. It's an alliance representing over 200 million subsistence and peasant farmers across the globe. We want to represent what is happening at the Caribbean islands. And I think I am also representing some how the south because here in glasgow there is not south the global south is not present because of the restriction so i feel like i have a big responsibility that's why i i am here as a farmer as a peasant as a woman as a caribbean as a latin person we need uh, very fast real solutions no false solutions we don't have enough time. It's now or never, so it's important to ask to our, our supposed leaders of the government that take the actions and the difficult decisions that they have to do and not just follow the money, just follow what is the grassroots know and how we can 
survive because otherwise we are going all down and the earth will keep going but without us. So I spoke with loads of people and I've only been able to include a few of their voices here. So sorry if I spoke with you and we haven't been able to fit you in or we've only included a a bit of what you said. But meeting you was the thing I I will really take away from this COP. Next, we have Farzana Farooq from Bangladesh. And I asked her what she wanted and what solutions they have to climate change. We already have the solution in our own communities, especially in the indigenous communities, in the rural communities who are already fighting these uh, problems like for years. So uh, what we need to do is follow them and follow their lead. We just need uh, the government and everyone to work on this. We need the reparation we deserve and this must be paid and as soon as possible. And I will say no, not as soon as possible now. We need it now because we are suffering and people are dying. And finally, we're going to hear from Jacopita again. She's, she was from Namibia. Here she is on reparations. If these countries are going to be giving reparations to countries like in Africa or most affected countries, I feel like they should, they should give the money, but then they should also do follow-up after that just to make sure that the money really reaches the people that it's supposed to reach. Because most times this money is given and then we have uh, government officials that are corrupt and this money ne- never really benefits the people that it's supposed to benefit. Another thing is that uh, we come to these cops every year, but then we all go home to our countries and we still face the same problems. And I feel like this is also because the people that are sent from every country to represent their countries, they are really not really impacted by the climate crisis because they are advantaged. I mean, you can send your president here, but back home your president doesn't work 30 miles to go get water, so he's not really fully equipped to represent uh, marginalized people or people that are that are affected by the climate crisis because he doesn't know how it feels like. So I feel like there's a big gap between the people that are affected and the people that come to COP. And as long as there's that gap, the negotiations or talks that are being held at COP will only be conversations of the rich people and not the people that are actually affected by the climate crisis. young activists there expressing their justifiable anger about reparations. So let's explore that next. Some of the most contentious issues at this COP have centred on the need for wealthy nations to put up money for poorer ones, for both mitigation measures to help nations get to net zero, but also for adaptation to enable affected countries to adapt to the significant environmental changes that are already happening. And so for some context, it's worth saying that everything here is being viewed against the failure of developed countries to pay $100 billion annually to vulnerable nations by 2020. That's a promise they made back in Paris in 2015, and they haven't got there. Yeah, it's it's worth saying that this goal actually predates Paris. It dates back to COP15 in Copenhagen way back in 2009, the infamous Nearly Conference, where we so nearly reached global agreement on emissions reduction six years before Paris. One of the few concrete things that did come out of that was this $100 billion commitment. And the rich world gave itself a a full decade's grace to come up with it. And we're still 20 billion short. And I talked about being in on the negotiations about climate finance earlier. And a Colombian representative on those negotiations said, there is space for discussing climate finance, but there is not a space for having a conversation now on delivering the $100 billion goal. It really has overshadowed everything. And now it's emerged that India is saying it, it, it needs $1 trillion by 2030 in order to uphold its net zero commitments. 
Yes. And as you mentioned, Penny, a crucial shift that's happened at this COP is that people have moved on to talk about not just funding for mitigation, UN speak for emissions reductions, but money specifically earmarked for adaptation, that is building resilience for the expected impacts of climate change, which could cover anything from building flood defences against rising sea levels and the impacts of extreme weather to ensuring food security in a warming world by, for example, developing seed types that are more resistant to drought. And now, adaptation finance is not an entirely new thing, but only about 25% of the $80 billion that's been pledged so far is going to adaptation. And as the Environment Minister of Bhutan put it in one of the sessions I was in, adaptation is far more important for developing countries. Mitigation is the responsibility of the emitters. That is to say, the countries with the highest emissions and the most to mitigate tend to be the richer world countries who have the money already. But when you start talking about adapting to the impacts, lower income countries are disproportionately affected. And as we heard in those clips from the activists, the developing countries want money now and they want it for adaptation, not mitigation. And yes, the sums we're talking about could run into the trillions. And there's a huge credibility gap between that and the sort of sums being pledged. The UK earlier in the week trumpeted an extra 232 million specifically earmarked for adaptation, while the Biden administration in the US says it's looking to put together three billion dollars a year by 2025 it's it's just not enough yeah i mean it's not enough but there is a lot going on still and so, and a lot of it is really inspiring so i went to that thing you just mentioned about the what the british government were launching the adaptation research alliance and that's got dozens of countries and agencies signed up to it and there's a related thing called clare a bit confusingly it, may, it means climate adaptation and resilience and there's just loads of there's loads and loads going on there. Um, and another thing I went to, there was a pledging session, which is it was like, a, a, like a charity pledging session kind of thing. It was chaired by Andrew Steer, who's the boss of the $10 billion Bezos Earth Fund. And that had 11 governments pledging $413 million to the least developed countries' climate adaptation needs. And that's part of the Global Environment Facility. Um, and so that is part of the mechanism to eventually get to the $100 billion. And I know it's not, we're not at 100 billion by a long way, but there is all this really important work going on. And the other thing that struck me, though, is um, how that there are big philanthropy involved now. So we've got Bezos there and we had Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation in the Adaptation Research Alliance. So we know we're at the point now that we, when we've got this failure to reach the 100 billion, the role of, of, of philanthropy in billionaire finance becomes bigger. And that's, it's not exactly great to rely on that. Well, well, no, but I think it's I think it's not just about philanthropy. Actually, I think the next phase is about how do you unlock the entire financial system. So not just public finance, but also private finance, because the whole point is that there is an awful lot more money in of private finance that could be directed towards this. So what needs to happen is an entire overhauling of the financial system around climate so that you lower the cost of capital so that you're able to direct that private finance as well as the public finance into adaptation, green recovery, just transition, nature-based solutions, helping those developing countries build resilience to climate change that's going to be in store, but also helping them to transition their economies uh, so that they follow a clean development pathway rather than a, a polluting uh, pathway. Yeah, so I don't disagree with anything that you know, you've know you said, Richard, or you, Emily. Uh, I, I suppose I would just make two points on the finance side. One is that 
there's a lot of anger here um, from developing countries about the fact that the 100 billion a year is going to be three years late. And we said, you know, it's people we spoke to before the summit said that was going to be an open wound if it wasn't done. And it wasn't done. And lo and behold, it, it has been a real issue. And it's really damaged trust here at COP26. So there is a lot of despite the progress, there's also, um, it's been a real sticking point finance. And, and the, the important thing to know about finance is that it cuts across all the other issues. So I don't always agree with what Boris Johnson, the UK Prime Minister says, but you know, he called finance the solvent at these talks. And, and, and he's right in that sense. And it, it really does unlock action on other issues such as cutting emissions and adaptation to climate change. So the, the failures on finance affect everything. One final thing, I think you have to see this in the context of COVID as well, not just the increased inequalities between social inequalities, financial inequalities, vaccine inequalities that we've seen between, between the developed and developing world, but also the fact that the I think the developed world has now pledged to themselves something like $17 trillion in COVID recovery money. Now, to plead poverty for $100 billion to the developing world for climate change, that just doesn't wash. Now, we like to toe the line of optimistic realists here at New Scientist. So despite the uncertain nature of the treaty and all that anger we've heard from activists, um, let's look at the positive stuff if we can. Adam, what can we be pleased with? So I think the issue here really is is one that's to do with the, the way the whole summit is sort of perceived at the end, really, which is, which is recognising that there has been progress, there has been material progress on the sort of core negotiations and there's been all these shiny deals around the side on various different sectors from transport to forest to blah and that all does make a difference but at the same time to remember that it's clearly not commensurate with the challenge which is you know the target the world set itself six years ago of holding global warming to well below two degrees and pursuing efforts 1.5 degrees clearly we are not on track for that at the moment and for the UK, which is hosting this and which has repeatedly said that its aim is to keep 1.5 alive, that's a problem. Like I said earlier, I was really struck by the map of science around here, which I didn't expect is my first COP. It was more like a science conference in lots of ways. So it was great. And all the solutions that are on offer, you know, from batteries to agriculture, that for me has been the theme of it, that there is so many solutions on offer um, but Emily, what stood out for you? Well, I was going to say exactly the same. So we had a science and innovation day, a whole day dedicated to science innovation. And it wasn't just that. I mean, pretty much every day there was science infused throughout it. And in fact, that science and innovation day, I am told every single event was sold out. You know, there were queues and it was the only session, only day where that was true of the, of the whole two weeks. And I do think that actually, if we're looking for some optimism in terms of what is otherwise often a very bleak picture, then the solutions really are. Um, there's so much exciting stuff, for you, as you mentioned, you know, on energy storage, whether it's new battery technologies for electric vehicles or for grid scale storage. If uh, we've heard there was a launch um, that I was involved in yesterday um, around uh, net zero aviation, that's another, um, you know, potentially exciting set of technological developments, whether it's, uh, you mentioned agriculture, different forms of sustainable agriculture, bringing in digital technologies in terms of helping to support that, whether it's in terms of um, looking at, at different ways, technological or nature-based, to actually remove greenhouse gases from the atmosphere, whether that's carbon dioxide or methane. There are just such a wealth of, ex and that's where it gets exciting. There's been a really interesting thing I've noticed, uh, you know, you, you guys talking about the science there and 
what's been really noticeable at this climate or at these climate talks compared to previous ones is how prominent the science has been and how the more progressive bolder leaders here have sort of used science as a shield using this kind of like covid like language of we're following the science and i I just think that's a really big difference from before Um, i'm not entirely sure why it is whether it's just that you know we've got these new reports from the ipcc in 2018 and this year and that they've shifted the dial or because it became a habit that world leaders got into during the pandemic but i do think it's just it's just notable and important how foregrounded and how important the science is at this talks. Emily, with your AI hat on, so I should say that Emily heads up the UKRI Centre for Doctoral Training on the Application of AI to the Study of Environmental Risks. (laughs) Um, How can AI help? Oh, in so many different ways, actually. Um, So the sorts of ways we're using AI, we're using it to combine together different data sets so that we've got a better understanding of the risks um, posed by climate change. We're using it in terms of all all sorts of different ways in terms of the solutions. So on the agriculture side of things that you mentioned, um, then it can be used um, to look at how to to do more precision agriculture using less fertilizers and therefore less emissions, for example. It can be used to do effectively discovery of different industrial processes if you're trying to green industrial processes it can be used as part of developing digital twins of all sorts of things there are already digital twins of wind farms for example that are being used to operate those wind farms more effectively it can be used to look at uh, some of the really important things that are coming up in terms of the development of carbon markets for example a critical element element associated with that is the transparency and traceability of the carbon through those markets so you can use blockchain type technologies in order to in order to do that so there's just a, an absolute wealth of different potential digital applications where there's real opportunity actually i tell you the other one is is in terms of apps on your phone mm-hmm. um, so if you're wanting to sort of help a circular economy or reuse and reusing or bringing together collaborations between all sorts of different partners then digital technologies also often offer opportunities there and richard any bright spots for you from from the past week or two I think one bright spot yesterday was the big declaration on electric vehicles. And that took a lot of flack from people because of the absence of a lot of big car manufacturing nations, Germany, Japan, the US, and some big car manufacturers themselves, Volkswagen, Nissan, Renault. But I was talking to Rob de Jong, who's head of sustainable mobility for the United Nations Environment Programme. And he really surprised me by saying he thinks this is the first step. This will be the point when we look back and say we started to bend the curve and we went towards electric mobility and we will get there, if not by 2040, by soon after that. But but in general, whether or not that happens, what I take out of this conference, is it goes back to what I said earlier, that whatever comes out of this conference, there will be anger and there are more could always have been better but you have to turn that round and say less would have been worse and look at the alternative where the world isn't even talking about these things where it's retreated completely into economic and climate nationalism and it's everyone for themselves for all the righteous anger we're not quite living in that world what do we want less than the worst what do we want <laughs> no, it I tell, now I tell you what, one, another <laughs> optimistic thing actually um so one thing that we launched on on science and innovation day was this really great project that we'd um, undertaken called Futures We Want. And what we did was we worked with um, a whole set of countries. So it was Jamaica, Kenya, Brazil, India, 
and then Saudi Arabia and United <laughs> Arab Emirates and the UK. Um, and uh, so first of all, it was two components to the project. The first one was working with academic experts in those countries supported by postdocs from um, from Cambridge, where we created reports on what a what an achievable future might be. So looking at the different technological or nature-based solutions for creating in each of those countries a climate-resilient net zero future. And then once we've got that what was achievable, we then took it to this really broad group of citizens and stakeholders and asked them to reflect on that and so that we turn what was achievable into what was desirable. And that was the first time that I've really seen at a country-specific level a kind of a hopeful vision of what it is that we could be working towards. And if there was, you know, that actually was an optimistic moment for me. It was quite an uplifting moment. And, and in fact, the, when we launched it, it was a sort of two component um, session. So the first session was on the risks. And then the second session was on this future. And it really did feel when we when we launched the future bit that there was, you could feel the whole room slightly thinking, gosh, maybe we could actually do this. And finally, we spoke with Christiana Figueres on the line from Costa Rica. She led the Paris Climate Meeting in 2015 and we asked her for a message of optimism. I think we have to understand that this is, um, sadly, I mean, obviously all of us would want to have a magic wand and transform things overnight, but that is not the case. And so we have to understand that this is a progress, that there is a very important concept called progression that is embedded into the Paris Agreement that recognizes that we have, that the direction has been set, we're definitely moving toward decarbonization, but that has to be done over time. Now, over time, we actually do see decided progress. Because let's remember that before Paris, we were going to a warming that was anywhere between five to six degrees by the end of the century. Then with the NDCs that were registered under Paris, we cut that down to 3.7. Now with the second wave of the reduction commitments that were made over the past 10 months before the COP26 started, we brought that down to 2.7. And now with the new ones that have come in over the past 10 days, we're down to 2.4. Now you can see that as a glass full or a glass empty, but in any event, you can see that the direction is the correct direction. On top of that, we have to overlay speed, scale, urgency. That is what is needed. It is not about, are we actually doing the right thing? We're doing the right thing, just not quickly enough. That's it for this week. We hope you enjoyed our Glasgow COP special. Do spread the word on your networks about our show and this episode in particular. Yeah, we really want to get those voices of the young activists uh, out there as widely heard as possible. And thanks to them for coming on the show and to our special guest, Emily Shukbra, and to Adam and Richard here in Glasgow too. And thanks to you for listening. We'll see you again next week. Goodbye. Bye. Bye. Goodbye. Bye. This podcast is produced by OG Podcasts. Find out more at ogpodcasts.co.uk.